You are listening to Down Home. Doing this Down Home podcast has been quite the journey for DNI. We've been able to have some great conversations with our friends, friends of friends, friends that recommend friends, and so the story goes. But we've also been able to reconnect with family. And so on this 30th episode, Down Home has a conversation with my two sisters, Cheryl and Emily, as they share some of their own personal stories of what it's like to be a black woman and some issues they face being black educators. Welcome to another episode of Down Home, the Nova Scotia experience by two black men. I'm Jason Jones, and as always, we have DC Wise with us. What's up? What's happening today? Uh, we have a great, great, great episode because I'm able to uh, share share the podcast with my two sisters, Cheryl Hennifer and Emily Summers. Welcome. Thank you. Now, Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. It means a lot, and it's kind of cool to have a little bit of a family reunion. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, we're going to get right into it. Uh, you guys are both educators, Emily. You're in New Brunswick, and Cheryl, you're here in Ontario. Um, I wanted to compare what you saw in school as a student to what you see now as a teacher, as well as for, like from the perspective of a biracial educator. Uh, Cheryl, you can go ahead and start. Um, so I would say for both situations, like coming as a a student and then, you know, what I see as a educator, I would say like in both circumstances, I saw like racism for sure. Mm -hmm. But I would say that both it's, you know, kind of changed the way it manifests like mm-hmm. from before as to how I see it now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, when I was a student, I always felt like coming into a class, I had to prove that I was smart. And um, yeah, I know a lot of people can relate to that just from discussions I've had, but there was just like this stereotype that, black students weren't as smart as the white students. And so I had to just kind of always, you know, raise my hand and try to just be seen so that I was, you know, perceived as smart. And then like, as I um, decided I wanted to be a teacher, um, actually let's reverse back a little bit. Um, I'm friends with um, a person now that I actually went to school with back then we were still in contact is what I mean and we both have the same memory of when we were in grade five we were the only black students in the class and um we were forced to sit together um 
we kind of ran with, uh, you know, a couple of different uh, friends, but, and we were okay with each other, but, you know, it was just kind of like that perception that um, you must be with the other black student. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, we were forced to do projects together. Um, Other kids could choose their partner. We had to be together. Um, And so like there was, that was more blatant, I would say. Um, Going and being a student teacher, um, I was student teaching at a school in Halifax. And um, I walked into the classroom and all of the desks were in a horseshoe. Yeah. Um, But I noticed that um, there were desks that were outside of the horseshoe, kind of like pushed into the corners of the room. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but Mm -hmm. I'd asked the teacher, like, what's with the seating plan? And he was like, well, the white children sit in the horseshoe and the black kids sit like in the corners. And I was like, well, why would you do that? And he was like, again, stereotypes, um, black children's voices are too loud. So therefore, if we put them in the corners, then they're less likely to um, speak. Oh. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. So like, <laughs> it was like at that moment where like I had a little one already and I was like, okay, so let's find somewhere else to go to school. <laughs> yeah, <wow. laughs> I, I'm not putting her in, in here. Like this is no. What year would that have been when you were a student teacher? Like, uh, uh, so that would have been, uh, that would have been 2003. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Yeah. Um, so that was like my experience leading up. And then, um, as an educator, um, so right now, um, I'm in the middle of like over the last, say, we'll say three to five years, I've been slowly trying to build, um, safe spaces for children of a variety of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And, um, what that includes is, Um, you know, safe spaces during lunch hour, um, you know, meetings, clubs, um, meeting with admin, meeting with other, trying to, um, create learning environments for the, uh, educators themselves so that they are not, um, perpetuating, you know, um, basically, uh, racism and violence, uh, amongst their, in their classrooms. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, working with kids so that they have a voice. Um, so I've been like working with that, um, lot of roadblocks, like mm-hmm. yeah. the roadblocks are all around, um, feeling like when you, when you say this is a need, you're basically saying that be, you know, therefore there is a problem. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't like that. Like they don't like being called out on their shit. Like they yeah. don't like it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you are trying to create this like, 
you know, kind of vision for the kids. And it's like roadblock, 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 roadblock. So, um, example, we, I was like doing like a, uh, a teacher education kind of thing. And, um, just in the middle of the whole thing, the teacher was like, stood up and was like, um, all lives matter. Mm. Oh, and yeah, just like as an aggressive, like, you know, form of defiance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to stop what you're trying yeah. to. Yeah. And, and nobody said anything like mm-hmm. no teacher, no, uh, administrator, nobody said anything. So I was just like, okay, the, <laughs> yeah. moving on to the kids, like they're mm-hmm. what's important. Yeah. Um, so then in working with the kids and like, this is as, as recent as this year, you get, sometimes you get teachers who like, they have an idea in their mind of what equity is, mm-hmm. but it's not really what, um, the re- what it is in reality with regards to the kids. Mm-hmm. And so like we had had a discussion about what is privilege and what is white privilege. And Mm -hmm. she became upset and um, said, well, what is black privilege? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) It's like day in the life. Um, (laughs) But um, what ended up happening, what I ended up addressing with that was um, I had gotten over the last couple of years, um, video, not video, um, voice recordings mm-hmm. of black children and their experience in the school system. Yeah. And I amalgamated that those, um, you know, that um, information into a video. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's really powerful. And when you listen to it, it's like the kids are just telling their, like, they, they're not labeling anything. They're just like, I remember this one time when. Yeah. From their and, own feelings. Yeah. And, you know, there are things that are extremely blatant in them. And then there are mm-hmm. things that are very like undercurrent, like a teacher wouldn't even realize that they are perpetuating racism in their own classroom, but they did. Yeah. And um, the 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 audio footage of this was pretty strong. Yeah. And um, I played it for my administrators, and they were like, "Let's just keep this, you know, <laughs> like um, we'll see how we can use this, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. like like let's not rock the boat, kind of thing." Exactly. Yeah. But I kept hold of it and. Um, you know, when, um, confronted with an, you know, authentic question of like, well, you know, we're talking about white privilege and we're talking about, um, you know, issues within the classroom and, you know, we're being challenged with, well, it doesn't exist. Um, I played the audio Mm -hmm. and, um, the kids were like, totally like yep Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's yeah that's correct (laughs) you know and um but the 
but the real learning was actually with the adults in the room who were like, oh. Um, So I began by saying that, um, you know, it just has manifested itself, the racism in a different way. And I would conclude by saying the exact same thing that, um, you know, it, it started out as, you know, me just trying to show how that I was smart. Mm-hmm. And it concluded, well, it's not concluded, but, you know, it continues in a different way where I'm just trying to give children a voice now so that they, their, their futures are bright. So a lot to, lot to take in and a lot to go through. You must be at your wits end sometimes. You can't <laughs> yeah. sort of get those changes in the system. And Yeah, and it's frustrating. Knowing- and knowing those voices from the children are actually saying how they feel, you know, mm-hmm. and we need to start looking at that. Like, how do people feel, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's crazy. Well, Emily, what, what do you have to say? What, what has your experience been? Um, well, to echo some of the things that Cheryl has said, you know, when all these uh, stereotypes kind of get thrust upon you, you feel like in a classroom, you have to constantly prove yourself. And so, I had a unique situation where growing up in very small town, Southern New Brunswick, I was the only person of color in my community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I was adopted into a white family and they are my family. I love them. And they were very supportive, probably didn't even realize I was black until about age four when a neighbor brought it to my attention. Mm-hmm. Parents within the community would say, Oh, you're hanging out with the black child. And I just knew I was part of the Thompson family and I had two sisters and I had two parents and we lived on Princess Street. You know, I didn't really understand what that meant. And they made it very negative to me, even though these were my friends. So I would go home and I'd be upset and I'd say, what does this mean? And they say, well, you are darker skin than other people. And this is how people see you and this is how they label you. So I said, oh, okay. I mean, still at a very young age, then realizing I'm black, but still not knowing what those implications were. So at growing up, you can imagine, I saw the full slate of of blatant and subtle racism. It Mm -hmm. was with small things like playing with my hair, um, versus um, saying things like, why is your skin so dirty? Or then eventually the N-word. So I would have heard the N-word hundreds of times during my elementary school experience. And so there was one particular occasion, and I've told this story before, where I'm in grade six. And for the first time in, uh, in my curriculum, in my school, they started talking about the Underground Railroad. And they talked about slavery and they talked about um, Canadians' role in, um, you know, bringing Black slaves into Canada. And I was riveted. I'm sitting in there and it's the first time in any of my classes that Mm -hmm. someone's talked about people of color. And I'm excited. Even though it's not a, a pretty history, I was just so grateful to be sitting there. And then I walked out of that class and I was, you know, I was on high and a student came up to me who is a student who had used the N-word with me several times before, just one of those, you know, class bullies. And he said, you're nothing but a slave. Mm. And I was angry. 
and I started to cry. And at that point, you get the ugly cry going, right? Like, so I, I'm storming through the hall and my homeroom teacher, I bump right into him. He's a very tall man. And I'll never forget this because he stopped me and he said, what's going on? And at that point, I exploded out like the tears and the snot and the bad crying is coming out and I'm mad. And I can't even say almost what I want to say, but it's kind of like, he called me a slave. Like it was, mm -hmm. it was mad. And he said, you know, sometimes you just need to tell people exactly how you feel. I'm going to go into my classroom right now and I'm going to shut the door and I won't hear anything that you have to say. And I went, okay. And then I turned around and I went back to that guy and I found him in the hallway and I screamed all the bad words that I knew. And I told him off and he didn't bother me again. But what I have discovered in my small community is that if for a long time, I believe that many people were racist, mm -hmm. then slowly I started to realize that I had allies and he was the first one. And he was the first one who said, you can stand up for yourself and you don't need to take this anymore. So that was huge. And as far as confidence and as far as feeling like I wasn't less than because many people over time, felt that never from my family, never from my immediate friends. So as I went up into middle school and into high school, there became this discovery of my blackness where I wanted to read more things, where I wanted to learn more stuff. I would meet people from Toronto, friends, cousins, friends of friends, and they'd say to me, what are you? <laughs> and I'd mm -hmm. say, I'm black. And they'd say, nah, no, you're not. <laughs> and so I became curious about my about my background. And I knew it was a mixed background, but I had, you know, I had no context. I had no information. And eventually that's a whole other longer story, the discovery of my biological family. Yeah. And, but it was a, as a student, it was, I'm being made to feel different. I am being thrown stereotypes at me that I don't understand. And I had to prove that I was smart. I had to prove that I was articulate. Um, I had to prove that I did not belong on a basketball team. I was five feet tall and people were asking me to try out for basketball. I'm going, what do you do? Like, you know, those kinds of silly, now that you think back at it, stereotypes. Mm -hmm. But um, all of that was just, you know, thrown at me. And so then as I became more educated and I became more curious, I realized, you know, this is something, even though, this was that I did have support, that I did have allies, that uh, I was meeting other people of color and we were talking about all of our shared experiences and they were all the same, which is very unfortunate. And I thought, you know, there was, there was this moment in my education where I said, okay, I want to be a teacher. Do I go to the city and do I experience a more diverse population or do I go back to my community and do I tell them, this is what it's supposed to be like. And I made the very conscious choice to stay in New Brunswick and to continue teaching and in a rural community, my own community, because I wanted to make a difference. And now we're becoming more of a, a diverse population and those students are isolated. And so like Cheryl has talked about, you know, I, I am a safe space as well um, because we all do have this shared experience. And in my teaching, I have made a very conscious effort to 
it to talk about race. Um, I talk about it in all grades, but I do a very big focus with my grade 11 students because they are about to go off into the world and experience other cultures. Um, they might have one or two students of color within their class from various backgrounds. And every time the conversation comes up and I share my own experience with racism, they're in shock, but then they're also not in shock because they've heard it in gaming. They've heard things said in the hallway. It's not as bad as when I was growing up, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. So then that one or two or three people of color for whatever background they're from are sitting in my classroom and they're saying, yes, I've been called. And then they list things out and the other students are nodding and because they know. Yeah. And so some students usually, usually the conversations we have are very uh, powerful. Um, a lot of students might change their ways, might think about what they say after that. And if that's the case, then I've done my job mm -hmm. as a teacher. I did have to feel like I had to prove myself. I was the black teacher at my high school. And um, there were times where um, certain incidents would happen with students. And I, sometimes it was decided that the discipline issue had nothing to do with race. And then I had to say, no, this is a racist issue. So one example was, uh, and it's kind of a not nice one. Um, I was standing on duty in a locker area and there were some boys crowded around a locker that was open. I couldn't see what was on his, in the inside of his locker, but they were laughing and pointing and smiling, carrying on. And then they stopped and they all looked over at me and then they came, went back and then they laughed and giggled and whispered some more. So very subtly, I start to circulate around the room. I get to the back part of the locker and I realize that this young gentleman had uh, pornographic images of black women in his locker. Uh. So I had to speak to him. I took him right down to the principal. We sat down, he gets detention, he gets suspended. But then in the, having the conversation with the administration and they were very supportive of me, but they said, you know, this kid is getting disciplined because he had pornography. Not that they were gesturing towards the black teacher in a, a bit of a racist act. And I had to say, no, it's a racist act. And so they, they, they wanted to run away from that as much as possible. And the still, even to this day, this student was published because, or punished and received consequences because he, because he had pornography in his locker, but not because of the racism associated with that. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt like sometimes that we had to defend it. And so in the last year, I was on a Zoom call with um, other um, educators in my province. They brought together uh, community members, teachers, students of color, uh, white teachers, administrators, and white students of color. And we all kind of had this conversation about race because after the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, and also, a lot of the things that we're seeing going on in the States, there becomes renewed conversation about race and some things are coming, bubbling back up to the surface thing, words and terms that were not being, were considered taboo are mm -hmm. on the lips of teenagers again. And also uh, renewed 
hate towards different groups of people of color. And wow. so we had a provincial conversation and it was excellent and about is this an issue, <laughs> right? Like I could tell you from 20 years of teaching, yes, it's an issue. It was an issue then, it's an issue now. But what was fantastic and also terrible is that when you're sitting with all these black educators and every single one of them is saying, yes, I've experienced racism. Yes, I've seen students experience racism. And many times I've had to prove what I am seeing as racism to the people around me. But in a couple of occasions, there was one uh, principal from St. John, and he explained that he experienced a racist act when he was out socially with his with a, a group of other teachers. Uh, he was isolated, pinpointed, and all of the teachers around him said, wow, like they all knew that what was happening was not right. They spoke up for him. They said, they, they said, yeah, that, that wasn't cool, man. Like that's, that guy was totally being racist. Mm -hmm. And what he said really was profound at that moment. He said that a lot of people don't understand when you talk about racism, but the people in that room and the people who were his allies in that moment, they felt it. Mm -hmm. When you do not have to necessarily be a person of color to feel the racism that is happening if you are in that situation. So when Cheryl was talking about, you know, that situation where someone says all lives matter and then no one says anything, every person in that room would have known. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's a question of whether or not people are going to step up. So from this Zoom call. Uh, obviously created some great friendships for and uh, allies for me, but also we decided that we needed uh, a person to directly deal with racism in each district. Uh, I was asked to apply for the job and I said no and um, and asked by several people and they said, well, it would be great and you could do this. I said, no, my place is in the classroom, talking to students, talking about the experiences of a person of color and letting them understand that this stuff isn't right anymore. And if I leave, who is going to do that? Mm -hmm. So they, they did hire a racism coach. Absolutely a great person has already come and spoken to our staff and has already very gently started talking about things. But one of the things that came out of our meeting initially was that we needed to create data that we need to collect the experiences because if every black educator on that call could say yes i've experienced racism and i'm dealing with kids who are people of color and they're telling us about their racist experiences we need to collect those stories so i love cheryl that you're recording it and that you are getting kids to share because we've all felt it and yeah. it's time that people believe that it is still happening even though it is 2021 mm -hmm. oh. excellent so um, it's it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, with that being said, obviously, you're both educated women, and you've had to sort of stand up and be seen and be shown. Now, there's a tag that sometimes often comes with it. And that's sort of the derogatory, angry black woman who is educated, and, and they want to stick up for themselves and their families. Do you guys get that? Um, other than the fact of you, you trying to do what you're trying to do? But or is it done? in a way that you sort of subtly see it, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's so, uh, Cheryl, uh, if you could start with that. 
Um, definitely. Um, and that's a big reason as to why I had to back off of trying to, um, you know, be an advocate for change within the adults in the school and kind of focus my energies on um, helping children have a voice. Um, I, like, a couple of years ago, I think it was about two or three years ago, I was like um, massively pursued by another teacher um, who was older. Uh, she was an older lady, um, very set in her ways, and she was on her last year of teaching before retirement. Mm -hmm. And it was traumatic. Um, it was, um, you know, using a physical presence by her letting me know that she had the power Um standing in doorways so I couldn't get past, um, standing in a hall full of a group of, uh, other teachers, all white teachers pointing, um, you know, uh, inappropriate emails. Um, there was like a, um, almost like a, like a feed, um, where the teachers of the school were like commenting on things and once again like inappropriate um comments being made through the feed where everyone can see um and when confronted with um you know hey like this isn't okay um you know massive outrage and almost like a turning of tables of like, um, you know, you're just trying to make uh, a big deal about nothing. And, um, you know, you're unhinged. Um, and this is like an actual experience I had like, <laughs> with this lady. Um, it was a hundred percent traumatic. It was like the craziest experience I've had with a colleague in, mm -hmm. in my, my, because it, it just was perpetuated and it was like happening all year. Um, and then she retired and nothing happened that the end, like, mm -hmm. and colleagues who stood by and would kind of very discreetly tell me, you know, I know, I see what she's doing. I see you know, the only black teacher in the entire school, the only person of color. And she's after you. Mm. Mm. And I just had to take it and I complained. Um, and then I had to go to above and then above and then above. And I was like up to like, you know, um, kind of like an equity officer. Um, in order to bring this to a conclusion, but ultimately she retired and then like, that was the conclusion. Just amazing. Like I, um, and the, the language around it, we actually were talking to a, a, a psychologist uh, for one podcast and she called it uh, racial gaslighting. Mm. 
Yeah. So like it, just to put the the name the word on it. Yeah. Like it's something that that word probably hasn't been used in the last 20 years except for the last 2 years. But to put the name on it and 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 I saw both of you say, "Oh yeah." <laughs> Once I said it, because because if you're a person of color, you know what that feels like. Yeah. And you know what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. And uh, Emily, what about you? Um, well, I've learned to become a very good actress. Um, I, you know, I teach drama. So mm -hmm. I find that my personality has to go in contradiction with everyone else's first impression of me and color. So, you know, being the only black teacher, I have to be extra smiley. I am extra friendly. And I, when things happen, I have to absorb it and right. feel it. And so, there, you know, there was a time where I've been with friends and I've been at a, a party and someone would say something that would just be so subtle, but not subtle. And I would just go, mm-hmm. And my friend would get angry. My white friend, she'd be like, I can't believe that, you know, he would say that to you. And I'd say, yeah. <laughs> and so she'd say, why aren't you mad? I said, I am. I'm screaming inside of my head. I am thinking of all the things I want to say inside of my head. But I can't go there. Because the minute that I go there, the minute that I let my emotion come out, I will then be the victim of the next label and the next stereotype. And I am not letting anybody have that power over me. So that, mm -hmm. happened, like, I've just been a really good actor for a really long time. And people will say, and I am a friendly person, but people will say, you know, oh, Mrs. Summer, she's very smiley. She's very kind. She's very nice. And I am those things. But there are times where it's almost like gritting teeth because when you get that label, then it's suddenly taken any argument that you had to prove, hey, this was not, this was not cool. This was a racist act. And the emotion that comes out of you, all of a sudden, they don't take you seriously anymore. Mm -hmm. So I've had to become, I'm like the queen of deep cleansing breaths because I can, <laughs> I have to, because when these things happen, you know, I had a student say to me, um, oh, you should go back to where you came from. And I said, I said, really? <laughs> and I said, well, where would that be? He says, well, where were you born? And I said, Bathurst. <laughs> and, he said, <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, people that look like you, they come from different places. I said, I'm pretty sure that we all came from different places. Yeah. And he didn't understand and he just wanted to make his mark. And then I said, okay, just go to the office. <laughs> Like, and, you know, that one was a little bit more obvious. So they took that one seriously. But, you know, I, I can't debate, I can't, you know, there are times where I just want to sit down and give, you know, a kid a really, really good lecture, you know, and say, this is not right, you can't do this. Um, but how do I do that there? If I'm just going to get that stereotype of the angry black woman. So instead, I I, I, in subtle ways, have to communicate my discomfort and my dislike, and I, I, I'm really good at acting, and it's terrible that that's what we have to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's almost like a tightrope, and like growing up in a, a single, like my mother brought me up, so 
I had a, a front seat to that. Um, <laughs> and just a quick story, like we, uh, my mother brought me up here to Ontario for a couple of years and um, at Brockville, Ontario. And um, it was the, it, I think it was two weeks into the school year and she went to the school and um, tried to enroll me. And uh, I was in the office for the first part of the conversation and uh, my mother was very controlled. And basically he was uh, the, the principal, she was talking to the principal was citing all these reasons why I couldn't enroll wow. two weeks into the school year. And um, then she, my mother asked me to leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like it was, she didn't yell at him, but the octave went up a couple, yeah. Of, yeah. couple of things. And then I, you know, I enrolled that afternoon. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, the, the first part of the conversation, there was like a tight rope being, mm -hmm. so I, I definitely, I, I've, I've been front seat to that. But um, uh, switching gears, though, um, as biracial women, um, like I, I have biracial kids, so we've we've had the uh, discussions about identity and where they fit in the community and, and things of that nature. Um, uh, how strong of a connection do both of you feel to your blackness in the black community? Uh, Cheryl, why don't you start there? Um, yeah, like I was, so in Halifax, um, I was in a French immersion program and there was, there were like no black people in there. <laughs> yeah. Like there was like three of us in like the K to six school. And then by the time we got to, uh, I ended up at St. Catherine's for K to six. And then I ended up at, um, Gorsebrook. Okay. For seven to nine. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got there, there was like two of us. Um, and then by the time I graduated there, there was, I was the only one left. Um, then when I went to St. Pat's, um, yeah, there, there was like, there was lots of black people, but that was also where I met uh, my ex-husband, Shane, and, you know, like, became friends with some of his friends and, like, you know, kind of uh, delved into more of that side of myself. Um, but, like, growing up, I would say, I remember my first, um, my first experience where I was like, oh, I'm not, like, I didn't, it's not, it's not like I didn't see colors, but it was like, I just didn't think it mattered. Yeah. I just like, okay. Like, you know, all the skin is different and, you know, some people have freckles and some people don't and like the hair color is all different. So I didn't, it was like, I registered that, but I didn't mm -hmm. think it was a problem. And so like, I remember being on the school bus and I remember like, the kids asking me, what are you? And the, and I like, I didn't know what they meant. I didn't yeah. know what they meant. They just kept saying, what are you, but what are you though? Mm -hmm. And I remember 
just getting so upset by the time I got off the bus, I was crying. Um, just because it just didn't make sense to me. And then that was, I was probably about five years old. And that was the first time that I had a conversation with my parents. Mm -hmm. The thing about it though, is that um, like my biological mom took off when I was four and was gone for 25 years. Right. And what I didn't realize was that I was part um, French Canadian, part Indigenous Mi'kmaq, and part Black. And so what I will say is that growing up, it all, like, and I'm sure maybe Emily can um, identify with this. It was just sort of like, I grew up knowing what my skin looked like, knowing what my hair looked like knowing what my eyes look like, but it was still like, like a piece of the puzzle was missing. Like I didn't really know who I was. Yeah. Um, and that was confusing and, and it made me feel ugly. And because a lot of the, you know, like the white friends and the white boys would like, you know, touch my hair and make it seem like it was ethnic you know, different. Um, it made me feel like I really, I, I thought for sure, like I was this ugly troll (laughs) growing up. It's like, okay. You know, it's, it was the, it's kind of crazy. Like I just went through this life because of these other people's perceptions and their, what they were saying to me. Um, it completely molded how I viewed myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't until I kind of connected with the Black community uh, in Halifax, you know, spent time out in North Preston because, again, my ex-husband's half of his family is from North Preston. And um, I also, you know, started doing community work within the community. I was um, a coordinator for the community YMCA for a couple of years. Um, I started a nonprofit um, Black Synchronized Swimming Girls Club um, in order to get, um, you know, like that kind of age group between, you know, like 10 and 15 something to do on a Friday night. Right. Um, and, you know, started doing these things within the black community. And I felt very like much at home, um, probably for the first time in my life. Right. Um, when I, this is interesting though. So when I went and taught, I taught first out West in Alberta mm-hmm. and that was like a whole other <laughs> kettle of fish we'll call it <laughs> that was crazy <laughs> like I have stories of that that are like he did what like it's crazy <laughs> that was crazy times and we'll call that like the you know the confederate flag the n-word um era and that is like all on its own right but Um, when I came back to Ontario, um, knowing that there was like more, it wasn't so much black and white, like 
Halifax. It was like multiculturalism. Um, two things happened. One, I reconnected with my indigenous roots, which was like the first time in my life. And it also created a more kind of solid, full picture of who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and also made me want to really establish um, even more so those safe places for my students because you know, I realized for the first time, not just from a black perspective, but from just a person of color perspective, how, um, you know, important that support is for our kids. Uh, Emily, how about you? How strong of a connection do you have with your, your blackness there? Well, I mean, you know, as I said before, I had, you know, with all the stereotypes, you you fight to just to be you, right? And there was confusion. And I echo what Cheryl went through because, you know, when people really aren't sure what to do with you, mm-hmm. <laughs> they make you feel so different that you do. You feel ugly. Uh, I had all these beautiful friends of mine who had blonde hair and blue eyes and they had boyfriends and I had none. I thought that that was the epitome of beauty because if they can get this boyfriend and I can't, um, then, and I had no options other than, you know, white boys, um, then white boys must not feel that I'm attractive. Um, and then weird things would happen. Like we would, um, I ended up being a cheerleader and for my high school career and, uh, a, a team would come to town for a tournament and there might be one, maybe two black youth as part of that team. And so immediately everyone would say, oh, there's one for you, Emily. Oh. <laughs> I don't know this person. <laughs> Am I supposed to be attracted to this guy? And so like, and, and so there was just, you know, they didn't know how, I don't think people were really being rude. I don't think they understood that they were being rude, but it was obviously, you know, not kind. Um, you know, but when I was six years old, I sat in a McDonald's in St. John, New Brunswick and St. John has a black community and is much more diverse. And so I was sitting there and I'm eating my French fries and across the room, there is a, uh, a black teenager with his two white friends and they are sitting and eating. And when I was six years old, that was the first time that I saw someone else who was black. And I couldn't stop staring at him. Like I don't, you know, if you're six years old, you love McDonald's French fries. Well, <laughs> I couldn't, I had the fry poised out of my mouth as I'm staring at this kid. And it gets to the point where the teenagers realize that there's this little black girl across the restaurant staring. And I was just, I, he was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. I was just so excited. And I just had this like smile on my face and I'm staring inappropriately at this young black teenager to the point that I think his friends started teasing him that he had a little girlfriend and that, and he probably got uncomfortable and they left. (laughs) So I, you know, I, it's funny because as I've gotten older and I've met more people of color, there are different things that happen. You know, once I'm at the UMB Fredericton cafeteria and I'm sitting and I'm by myself and I'm studying and a a black woman comes over to me and she sits down and she says, Hey, you know, my name is so-and-so I just seen you around. I thought I should introduce myself. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? And we start talking about our backgrounds. And then she says, well, you know, us black folks, we need to stick together. And I said, Oh, Oh, okay. You know, I'm (laughs) 
I, the people around me, I, I, I didn't really even know what that meant because I didn't have black folks around me. So mm-hmm. I found, I found that confusing, but I was glad that she was considering me one of her own and, you know, she became a, a friend later on. And so um, more and more, I realized I need to, you know, seek out experiences, seek out people. And, you know, even now I find myself, I'm in the grocery store and I'm walking through and I see a new family because it's a small town. Everyone knows everyone. Yeah. I'm walking through this grocery store and I see a new family and they could be, you know, an immigrant family. They could be just people of color, but I look at them. I smile. I'm like, Hey, how you go? Like, I want to say, Hey, I see you, you know, (laughs) welcome. Uh, We're not all like this. You know, I want, to be I'm extra cheery and extra nice to people who are brown because I want them to know you know that we're here right yeah. and um and it's going to be okay because I was never able to look around my community and see people of color and so one of the most amazing experiences was well first of all I did marry a, a white man and my children are biracial and I have a mini me my daughter uh, looks is is brown skin. She's got dark hair. She looks like me. And then I have my son who is light hair, blue eyes, lighter skin. And so when we're walking down the street, you know, we turn heads. Uh, mm-hmm. It used to be when I was a little, little kid, I turned heads because I had really big hair. Um, and, you know, people would stare. But now they, you know, part of it is, okay, I know who this is. And then the other part of it is, oh, wow, look at that family. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I'm used to it. Um, most, the, the kids in my family are not. So I've had to sit down and have conversations with them to say, we are part black. Mm-hmm. We embrace all parts of ourselves. Our skin might look a little bit different. From time to time, you're going to experience things that are going to be really confusing to you. And when those things happen, you need to let me know immediately. Yeah. And so my daughter, ironically, has not really experienced that who and she's the one with the dark skin my son has been called the n-word on three different occasions throughout his elementary years and it's because they know me so i you know and then there's that angry woman part of me who wants to storm into the school and get really really mad and instead, it's a very polite email <laughs> or phone conversation saying, hi, my son came home with this story today. I was just wondering if you could look into it. And so the first time I really experienced connection with my Blackness would have been when I met both of you in person. Uh, when we were at that reunion in right. Nova Scotia, we were in this park and our family group is here. And there are other very diverse family groups in all parts of the park, all having big family reunions. And I looked around and I said, here are my people. And all the thing that was the coolest part about it was not just the celebration of blackness, but was also the celebration of the fact that there were different partners and there were different shades of children. Like growing up, I never was able to look and see different shades of blackness. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I saw that in that park that day. And I was just, I was beaming. I was just so happy inside because I had found that. Now I have connections with my white biological family. My adoptive family are are all white and, and they're amazing people. Uh, and they're my family. 
Um, but it's, it was just that part of my culture. And I was 40 when I probably found Dave and his family. Yeah. I, it was the first time in 40 years that I felt that true, true connection to my blackness that I could say, I am a proud black woman and I, I love the diversity that I'm seeing within my own family. And it, it took, I think I was proud before and I was proud of my diversity before, but it was finally feeling a community that, and I think that community is important um, more and more so for any students, for any teacher, they need to know that they have, a community and they need to know where their roots are. And so my search for my roots took a lot longer, but I'm so glad that I was able to have those experiences because, you know, it, it answered so many questions and, and made me believe, yes, you know, I can be an attractive person. Yes, I am smart. And yes, I am, can represent people from my race without all these negative stereotypes. We've been exploring those concepts through this podcast. And Emily, what you've just said kind of encapsulates a lot of that message. Yeah. Uh, So thank you for those words. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you guys have any other parting words before we wrap up? Uh, Cheryl? Um, Just that I think um, moving forward, um, because of... uh, my profession and Emily, your profession. I think as you were saying, Derek, that um, I know that we focus a lot on um, us adults and, you know, our stories and that sort of thing, which kind of paved the way for the younger generation. But I think it's also really important to uh, continue to give our children a voice as well and room for that um some way somehow you know moving on into the future because you know i mean the cliche of their future i mean it's true and if there's one thing that i'm constantly combating it is that um you know oh racism is a thing of the past or oh that just happens in the states or you know, like, oh, he didn't really mean it that way. And I think, you know, the look on the people's faces um, when I did play that audio and just the look on their faces of like, oh, Mm. it was just, that was more powerful than anything I could have said as an Mm -hmm. adult. It was more powerful. Um, So, and, and I find kids have, like their heart is on their sleeve, you know? If you ask them, they will tell you. Um, So just, you know, allowing space for all the um, youth and children in our lives to to continue to use their voice um, and connecting as much as possible, just uh, piggybacking again on what Emily said, um, on our roots and where we're from, because if anything, I've learned just in these little um, interactions from Alberta to Nova Scotia is that, um, you know, our maritime ethnicity is something extremely unique and that you just won't find anywhere else. Um, And irregardless of where we live, we need to 
always come back to that spot and treasure it and, um, you know, pass on those stories um, because um, that that is a huge piece of who we are yeah. and uh, a part of the stories that we, we push forward. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Amen. And Emily, what about you? Any parting words? Um, the connection... What like what Cheryl was saying to our youth is is essential, um, and also you know not holding back for communicating how we feel, because I, I had a student who um, who was a white student uh, last in 2020, um, who was trying to um, who was trying to organize a Black Lives Matter rally. Now there are there were hardly any Black students within our school, and there was no. Black community within our school for someone to organize that. But she was seeing the things that were happening in the United States and she saw that people were organizing rallies and she said, I want to do something. I want to do the right thing. I want to celebrate our diversity, even though I'm not Black. Mm-hmm. And so she came to me because people were criticizing her for trying to organize something. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I see, I totally get that people would be critical how do you want to do this? And she said, okay, well, first of all, I'm here asking you, how do I word this? How do I, how I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. I want to make sure that I'm appropriate. And I said, okay. So she came up with, you know, text to be able to put the, the event out on social media, uh, hurt some of her original ideas. I said, don't say it like that. You know, <laughs> she, she, she listened and she put her information out there and then the day I was, she said, are you coming? And I said, yeah, I think so. And, but there was a moment where I'm sitting in my school and I'm ready to leave and they're meeting. The, the group is supposed to meet at a, a mall parking lot and then they're supposed to walk the length of the town. And then they were going to stop in the downtown core and they were going to take a knee and um, for the prescribed amount of time. And so I said, okay. Um, I'm going to do this. And I then started to feel very panicked. I had a moment where I started to think, we're going to walk through town and people are going to yell things at us. We're going to walk through town and there's only going to be a few of us. And it, I was, I, I really had a hard time leaving the building. I did not want to be the only black face in this crowd. Mm. And I was upset because I wanted to participate and I needed to participate, but I was so scared of what I was going to encounter. Mm-hmm. And I got in my car and they had already started marching. Um, and I, I deliberately decided I'm not going to start there. I'm going to meet them through the route. And I pulled in and as, as I started to drive, I drove past the march and there were hundreds of people and every person of color, every color, was in this march and it was my town it was my community and i started to cry it was like years of of all the things that i experienced and to see that level of support for the movement even though many of them were not black was profound and i pulled in to a part of the parking lot where I knew I was going to leave my car and I got out and I'm just, I'm trying to wipe the tears away. And I found some people that I knew and I, we walked together and it was a really big moment. And I know that some of my white colleagues 
feel very defensive sometimes about this issue and they're not willing to address it or they're afraid that it's an attack. But then there are other times where there are people who want to do the right thing and they want to have these conversations and they want to listen and they want to make a change. And mm -hmm. so I, as much as I, I don't like telling those stories, but when you talk, Cheryl, about that recording and people went, oh, that oh moment as oh, <laughs> yeah. and they feel it is so important. And we need to keep having these conversations with people of all backgrounds. And the more we have these conversations, the more people will understand and the more we can affect some change. That's, that's great. And wholeheartedly agree. And thank you so much, uh, Cheryl and Emily, for adding your voice to the Down Home podcast. Uh, it's been a special podcast. Um, you know, I've been meeting more of Jay, Jay Jones' family. <laughs> Seems like there's a lot of you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, this has been awesome. Uh, Jay Jones, take us out, man. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's uh, appropriate to say amen, sisters. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, thanks for taking us to church today, literally on the Sunday. But, um, you know, a lot of what you guys said resonated with me, um, resonated with me because your family um, resonated with me because I heard a little bit about your stories and what you went through and can see some similarities myself, even though I'm totally black compared to being biracial. But, uh, you know, um, I, I just noticed that strength within you and the changes that you're trying to make within your community. It's really I'm in awe and inspired by you and I'm thankful that you're both family and uh, taking this journey uh, and taking this trip through our podcast and being able to to interview different families uh, brings back those things of us getting back to community, family, strength, mm -hmm. and that love of passion to to express ourselves to be heard, be seen, and to guide the next generation to come um, mm -hmm. by uh, expressing what's going on in the world today so with that being said uh i love you both and uh looking forward to connecting with you more in the future so thanks for coming on today much love thank you you have been listening to down home subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts From the one down below to the future of the funk, getting lost in the flow. Contact with the spot, my gex. Now it's time to flex with the force from the soul, reaching all aspects. Getting deep, no time to sleep as you reach your next phase. Laying it all on the line, new trail start to blaze. It's a fire inside. The song Breaking New Ground from the breakdown. Just kicking it live, a connection so strong, transcribed with the vibe like magic prescribed. Only to see the perfect blend like a diamond in the rough.